Hello, and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. I'm Brandy, and I'm part of the Ridge team here in Morgantown. This week, we are in a two-part series called Immovable. Today, we're going to hear from Pastor Tim Herring as he teaches us about the foundation and authority of the Bible. We hope this talk will encourage and inspire you as you grow in your relationship with God and others. Well, good morning. I need to apologize up front for those of you from Pennsylvania and Maryland. Every once in a while, I'm going to have to wear my colors. It's just the way it is. Most of you know that I was raised in a church home. My dad was a pastor. And so all my life, I've been exposed to the Bible stories and, and the lessons in the Bible, the teaching of Jesus and things like this. This was my entire upbringing. And because of that, I've, I've had a conviction all of my life leading up to the present moment that the Bible is indeed the word of God and it's true. That the stories that we read about in the pages of the Bible happened exactly the way they're recorded. That if we want to know what God is like, you, you can learn from the pages of the Bible. And this was, just was my upbringing. And for most of my life, just about everybody I knew had the same perspective as I did. Uh, even ones that didn't regularly go to church believed that the Bible was the word of God. If you asked them, well, how would you define the Bible? They would have said, well, it's the word of God. And the average person, when I was growing up, at least for the first 30 years of my life, they knew the Bible stories. And they, they were familiar, had a basic knowledge of what the Bible talked about. But things have changed, as I talked about last week. And more and more, people do not, one, believe the Bible's true, but number two, they're not even familiar with the Bible stories. And that might be some of you here today that you, you weren't raised. It was no fault of your own, but you weren't raised going to Sunday school or church. You don't know the stories, and I'm thrilled you're here. I love the fact that you'd come to a church and, and begin to learn what's taught in the pages of the Bible because I think it's really, really important. But the state of affairs in our country today uh, led me to kind of change what I was gonna be talking about here today because I originally wanted to talk about the existence for God and how we know there is a God and how we should relate to God and that'll, maybe I'll talk about that some other time. But last week, as I talked about the Bible, I gave you one application and that was to start reading your Bible and as I was reflecting on this and talking with some of uh, the pastoral leaders on staff, a thought occurred to all of us that if people were to read the Bible, starting in the book of Genesis, and ones who were not familiar with the stories that are found in the Bible, it could be kind of shocking. You know, if you're reading the Old Testament, you're gonna to come to a story where a donkey talked to a prophet. And as soon as you read that, you have to say, did that really, that really happen? Which, by the way, I'm convinced it is, and I think it's God's sense of humor because there were two donkeys there. I'll just leave it there. But if you didn't grow up with Sunday school, you know, I grew up to just accept all these things at face value, but I realized that if, if you didn't grow up in church or whatever and you get exposed to some of the stories in the Bible, you have to admit that some of them are really, really unusual. They're unusual stories. And, and there are odd biblical laws out there and there are some ideas that are taught in the pages of the Bible that are, I think, kind of shocking if someone is exposed to them for the first time. For example... If you start reading the book of Genesis, you'll discover early on that Abraham had three wives. He was a polygamist. 
Now, if you read that, I would think, if you're just being exposed to it, you'd ask the question, hey, is that okay? You know, is it okay to have more than one wife? Is that something that's taught in the Bible, that it's okay to have more than one wife? And it would raise a really good question, which I hope the Bible does raise really good questions. Those of you that are familiar with the, the story of Noah's Ark, you know, you read a story about how God destroyed the entire world with a flood. Now that would cause most people to stop and say, did God really do that? Because for some of us, that doesn't seem like our image of what God would do. Although I'm convinced it really happened. I'm convinced the world was in such a state. It's described in Genesis chapter six as being a world where everybody did only what was wicked all the time. That even the thoughts of their mind were constantly wicked. That was the world. It was irredeemable. But I can understand if you read this story, you'd wonder about it. If you read the story of of David and Goliath, you know, that's one that most of us are familiar with, and you see this shepherd boy that kills this giant, but what might be shocking to you if you're reading the story is to learn how tall the guy was. Because if we use a biblical cubit, which was the biblical measurement, a cubit was 18 inches. It basically was the distance between the bottom of your elbow and your middle finger here, 18 inches for a typical guy, so you have a ruler with you all the time. How many cubits is something? And... Goliath would have been, based on the cubits, nine feet, nine inches tall. And so you realize this guy was almost 10 feet tall. And you again, I think, would wonder about that. You look at the penalty in the Old Testament law for violating some of the laws, and it seems severe. If you're caught committing idolatry, bowing before an idol, you could be put to death, or adultery, or a host of other sexual sins. And you say, well, wow, that just seems kind of severe, especially in our culture today. And so I realize if you read the Bible through a modern lens, just through a modern lens, I mean, it was finished like 2,000 years ago, and it's going to raise a number of questions. And yet, I'm convinced it's the Word of God, completely. And last week, I explained why, and let me summarize the, the points I made, why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but number one, I talked about biblical prophecy, how only God can predict the future because God is apart from time. He's not in time like we are. He's not locked into space like we are. He, he's, he sees the past, present, and future all the same. Only he can predict the future accurately 100% of the time. Others can guess. But the Bible's filled with hundreds of prophecies fulfilled over thousands of years, written by different, different authors. It, it, I'm just saying it's not even possible. Mathematically, statistically, it's impossible that that could have just happened. It tells me that the Bible was written by God. Internal consistency. 66 books in the book of the Bible, or uh, well, the Bible itself. 66 books, about 40 different authors written over 1,600 years, but it's one book. I find that incredible. The God of Genesis 1-1 is the God of Revelation in every book in between. Every single author, all 40 plus authors or so, they all agreed on what God is like, what people are like, the nature of sin, the requirement of sacrifice, the requirement of faith as the way in which you get right with God. All of them had complete agreement about that. And once again, I'd say that's impossible except that there was a divine author that orchestrated the whole thing. I talked about the fact that Jesus viewed the Bible as the word of God. He said, we're gonna be held accountable to every word. 
from the law and the prophets. Every bit of it, every jot and tittle will be fulfilled. A jot and a tittle, they were the smallest little marks in the Greek language. We'd put it this way, every T will be crossed in the Old Testament, every I will be dotted. And that's what Jesus taught and that's what he believed and, and frankly, I, I would take what he would say as gospel. Fourth, I mentioned the supernatural nature of the Bible. That it's, it, I know it's, this is subjective, but it, it has an impact on people. As I quoted last week from Hebrews, the word of God is living. It's different than any other book. It's alive. And why is it alive? Because it's called the sword of the spirit. God's spirit takes his word and opens our eyes. And so it has a different feel if you're humble enough to see it. It's not like any other book. Other books are inspiring, but this is inspired or God-breathed. And then finally, I talked about changed lives. How people like Paul, who was a murderer of Christians, became a martyr for Christ. You know, Peter, who was denying he even knew Jesus on the night of his arrest, was someone who was boldly preaching to thousands. Something changed with these guys. And these aren't the only reasons I believe the Bible is the word of God. Archaeology is confirming it more and more, and there are other reasons why I'm convinced it's true. But... What I want to talk about here today is how we need to approach the Bible in order to learn from it, really to learn, and to apply it properly and understand it properly, because I do think it requires a certain lens in which we view the Bible. My takeaway today is that we can come to the right conclusions if we approach the Bible the right way. We'll arrive at the truth, and it will have the right impact on our lives if we approach the Bible in the right way. I want to offer five suggestions. Number one is this, approach scripture with a humble and teachable attitude. If you want to get to the bottom, whether the Bible's true or not, whether it is God-breathed or not, how you approach it will make a huge difference. If you approach it with a teachable attitude and you say, I'm willing to learn, now I'm not saying you can't have doubts. Because as you read certain things, maybe you'll have doubts. No, I'm talking about there are some people that have a a critical attitude towards scripture. They approach it with the perspective to prove it wrong. They have no heart to learn from it. An example was I referred to last week, the professor that put together a list of 300 or so supposed contradictions. He had already decided it wasn't God's word and then he went around attacking it. If you approach the Bible that way, you won't understand anything. Jesus was talking to the religious leaders of his day named Sadducees in Matthew 22, 29. He said, Jesus answered them, you're deceived because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. They were ones who just did not believe God could do things. They didn't believe in the resurrection because they thought nobody can raise someone from the dead. They had already all these preconceived ideas. And so Jesus said about them, your problem is you don't know the word of God and you don't know the God of the word. You don't know either of those. And that's the reason arriving at the wrong conclusions, but there's a humility that if we approach Scripture with that humility, I think this is what Jesus was getting at when he shared the proverb that I mentioned a week or two ago about Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. And he was talking about, and I think there was a common proverb in Jesus' day, but it meant if you've got treasure truths, don't share them with people who won't regard them as being a treasure. Because Jesus said, just like pearls with swine, if you throw pearls before the swine, not only will they not recognize the value of the pearl, but they might trample you in the process. They'll attack you, which has happened to me. People don't regard the truth well. I don't say anything. Not my job to 
prove it to you if people don't have that heart. But when we approach the word with an attitude to learn and to listen, an open heart to say, please reveal it to me, help me to understand it, then I think our eyes are opened in some new ways. The psalmist who wrote Psalm 119 put it this way in verse 18. He said, open my eyes so I may contemplate wonderful things from your instruction. I envision that the guy's reading a scroll and this is the starting point, like before he began his quiet time, as it's called, before he sat down with the Bible, the scroll, this was his prayer, open my eyes that I may contemplate some wonderful things here. Give me some understanding I wouldn't have otherwise. He continues in verses 33 to 35, teach me, Lord, the meaning of your statutes and I'll always keep them. Help me understand your instruction and I will obey it and follow it with all my heart. Help me stay on the path of your commands for I take pleasure in it. You see the words there that illustrate his attitude. He listened, he had a heart to obey, he had an enjoyment of what he was reading. I think it makes a difference how we approach the Bible. Because I think God will withhold from people understanding if they're gonna regard his pearls in a way that's not valuable. Second suggestion is accept help from the faith community. I believe that God designed scripture, both Old and New Testaments, to be understood and interpreted within the faith community. Now this is something that I think is a little bit hard for us in our culture because we are used to, many of us anyway, reading our Bible on our own and God does reveal things to us. You know, as you're reading your Bible, the Spirit of God can inform you about various things, but understand that initially these things were given to the nation of Israel and they were given to the church. And why this is important is that we need checks and balances. We need people in our lives that'll help us understand when we have questions. This is one of the reasons that we really encourage community around here because you'll be in a context where you can begin to ask some of these questions and other people can help us. Also, Paul was talking about this in Ephesians chapter four and he talked about the fact that Jesus gave to the church leaders, you know, prophets and apostles and pastors and teachers or whatever. And then he said, here's why. In verse 14, he said, then we'll no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. There are people out there that are very clever and they will try to deceive and they do succeed. They're very convincing and you end up giving them your money or whatever else because they're, they're really good about twisting scripture or whatever. We need other people to help us to sort this out. Over the years, I've seen ones that grab a hold of certain understandings of the Bible that were not traditional. And many people approach them and say, what, you, what you're saying here is not true. Your interpretation is wrong. They would not listen and ended up wandering away from the truth because we need other people in our lives to help us. Now earlier I raised the question about Abraham and if I were in a group and you asked the question, What's this, what about this polygamy thing with Abraham? I would answer it this way and others could add to it, <clears throat> but I would say something to the effect, yes, Abraham had three wives and this might surprise some of you, but in the Old Testament, polygamy was not forbidden. It wasn't forbidden, but it wasn't encouraged either. <clears throat> so you wonder, how did it happen? 
Well, I think the starting point is God said, be fruitful and multiply. But more than that, they lived in an agrarian society where having a lot of children, especially the boys to work in the field in that culture, that, that, that was how your family business worked. That's how your family farm worked. You needed laborers, and so they'd want to have many, many children, and, and you didn't want to wait nine months for the next one. <laughs> so they'd have more than one. Oftentimes, that was the case. And so if their wife weren't, wasn't capable of conceiving, as in the case of Sarah, then he went after Rahab, or Rachel, I mean. Not Rachel either. What was her name? Either case. He went, you know, he passed, I need a child, I need a son. And that's how they approached it. Now, if you read the Bible correctly in the Old Testament, you will discover that polygamy was a horrible idea. This is about every single story involving more than one wife does not end well. The wives hated each other, the husbands faded, faced all these issues here. And you, we should learn from that. If I'm reading that in the Old Testament, I'd say, you know, this isn't a good idea. Maybe one is enough. And then when you get to the New Testament, you discover that God instituted a new rule for pastors. The pastors were not allowed to have more than one wife. The pastors had to be a one-wife type of person. And the law in our country, it's, I think, based on that third one there. They say, well, it was not a good idea for the church, and so it's not a good idea for our country. And so we passed a law saying it's not good. But we can together come to understanding about a lot of these things. Timothy was someone who was trained by other people, and this is where he got his firm foundation. Paul encouraged him to stay on that firm foundation. In 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, he said, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you. Now, specifically in Timothy's case, it was his mother and it was grandmother, and it was also the Apostle Paul. He went on to say, and you know that from childhood you've known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then as I quoted last week, all scriptures inspired by God, it's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And of course, this applies to women of God as well. But we need others in our lives to help us. I need it. I need checks and balances. So occasionally I will send my talk ahead of time to some of the pastoral staff. And I say, I'm a little concerned here. Do you see any problems? See if they highlight things. I've pulled things out saying that's not quite right. We need other people. Third suggestion I would offer in addition to the, the right attitude and interpreting scripture through community, number three is to avail yourself of good biblical resources. In other words, we have the ability to study this out. And so I've known people that they've read certain things and they just abandoned it because they said, well, this is just ridiculous and they set it aside. They didn't study it. They didn't understand the, maybe the culture or why certain things were the case. We have so many resources in our world today, though. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. The work there, by the way, was pastoring and teaching the word. The King James Version says, study to show yourself approved unto God, someone who doesn't have to be ashamed, but rightly holding the word of truth, because you get it wrong and you'll get ashamed. People bring it to your attention, you got that wrong. So study. Now, as a practical application of that, I encourage all of you to buy a study Bible. I have one up here. 
This is the, the study Bible I use. It's called the CSB, CSB, Christian Standard Bible. Or sometimes it's called CSV. Or it's called the Holman's Christian Standard Bible. It's produced by Holman's. Excellent study Bible. There are other good ones out there. Excellent study Bibles. A good study Bible, what it does is in the front of every single chapter, they'll, they'll explain what you're about to read in that book. You know, at, at the beginning of the book, all the books like Genesis, there'll be a, a long description there. Who wrote it? To whom were they re- writing it? What are the circumstances of the writing of it? What are the issues? They even give you an outline. And you have a, a good track to run on. And then, as you're reading along, at the bottom, they'll have comments by scholars. And almost always, a good study Bible will answer the very questions you were wondering about. To this day, that's where I go myself. I'm reading. Just this past week, I was reading something in the Old Testament, and a thought came to me. Why was that the case? And I had a theory. And then I read down below, and they addressed the exact issue. And then it confirmed that the theory was correct. And a good study Bible will really, really help you understand why certain things were the way they were. But there are other things out there. Uh, I would encourage you to consider getting a one or two volume commentary set. A commentary is basically a book that just explains every chapter as you go along. Just the verses and everything about the Bible. This is the Wycliffe Bible commentary. It's very good. The ones I really like, the ones I like the most are the Bible knowledge commentary set put out by Dallas, Dr. Wolvert. It's a two-volume set, one for the Old and New Testament. But, again, you can go there and get most of your questions answered. A good Bible dictionary would be helpful. And a a concordance. A Bible concordance is a a, a book that has where a word in the Bible is used everywhere else. And that allows you to compare. So you come to the word love, and every time the word love is used, it'll show you every single verse in the Bible, and you can do a, a study on the subject. These are excellent resources, and all of these, by the way, are available online. I use the Logos, it's really Logos, but they call it Logos Bible Software. Excellent uh, computer software program. It has, my version has probably 25, 20, 25 commentary sets, Bible dictionaries, encyclopedias, all of the resources I've mentioned are all there. What the words mean, Greek, Hebrew, all of that is there. But there are free resources online as well. I'm just saying we need sometimes help studying it and understanding it. For suggestion, admit the possibility some things are beyond your understanding. There are just some mysteries in the Bible we will never understand. God said through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 55, 8, and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Your words are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. There's some things we will never know and I'm, I'm kind of glad about that because I, if I understood everything in the Bible, I would kind of lose respect for it. If I knew everything about God, I, I would argue maybe I'd be God. I don't want a God that's as small as I am. There are gonna be things, going to be, gonna be, going to be things that we're not gonna understand. And a lot of people over the years, and more and more I'm hearing this, people are criticizing God. A God that would do that. A God that would do that as if we understand God. His ways are not our ways. He's infinitely greater than ours. So some examples that come to my mind, you know, if I'm reading the Old Testament, I'll come to the story of Job. The guy was the most righteous man in his day. 
But God had made a wager with the devil. And the wager was this, that despite what you throw at Job, he'll remain faithful to me. That was the wager. And then God allowed Satan to go after Job. He allowed Satan to take Job's 10 children through a storm, like a tornado. He allowed Job to lose all his wealth. He was like the wealthiest man probably in the world at the time. Lost his wealth. He lost his health, covered from head to toe in sores. Now, when you read the book of Job, you say, why would God do that? Well, that is a good question. Job wondered, of course, the question, and he never got the answer. Is that bothersome to any of you? You know what the answer God gave him was? My ways are higher than yours. You don't know anything at all. You, you think you can evaluate me? You want to put me on trial here? Tell me, how does this, the earth stay in place? Tell me about these sea creatures and why they do what they do. Why does an ostrich bury its eggs in the sand and then leave them? You know, stuff like that. I love the book of Job because it shows me several things. Number one is that um, just because bad things happen doesn't mean that there's sin in your life or unrighteousness. But it also shows me that I can trust God. That's the bottom line. That's the lesson of Job. I can, I can trust him when I don't understand. That's, that's what we need to learn here because sometimes we will not understand and if we acknowledge that. Now, there are doctrines in the Bible that are hard too, like the, the doctrine of a place called hell, which is described in the Bible as eternal. It's words like suffering, darkness, smoke. And Jesus talked a lot about it and I can't discard it. But we've had people that have left the church before because we would actually dare to say there's such a place. Because in their view, such a God would not be worthy of worship. And they would abandon him. Because I'm not going to worship a God that would create such a place. There are some questions here. There are mysteries I don't understand at all. What I do know is that God is wholly just. Now I know he's holy, holy too. Sinless, there is a standard. But he's just. I know he's, he is love. He doesn't just love, he's characterized by love. And so I say, okay, God, I trust you with this one. I don't get it, but I trust you because your ways are always good and right. Final suggestion I would offer to you is to allow the Bible to interpret itself. There's a basic rule in what's called hermeneutics. And that is that the Bible does indeed interpret itself. Hermeneutics is the study of biblical interpretation. Anyone that goes to seminary or Bible college will have to take one or two courses in hermeneutics. It's just rules that you use to interpret the Bible. And there are a lot of good rules out there that that we need to apply when interpreting the Bible. For example, recognizing the difference between the Old and the New Testaments or whatever. But one of the main rules has to do with allowing the Bible to explain itself. And there are different passages then when you bring them all together, then you come to a deeper understanding. And so we come to this question, for example, of these these dietary restrictions. And so the question is, the people of Israel were not allowed to eat lobster or pork. They couldn't eat bacon. They couldn't have shellfish and a variety of other things. They were not allowed to eat. Now, if you read that, you'd wonder, does that still apply to me today? And you'll have some people saying, yes, you've got to follow the Old Testament dietary laws. The true answer is no, you don't. And you say, well, how do you know, Tim? 
Well, the rest of the Bible explains it. In Mark chapter seven and verse 19, we read Jesus declared all foods clean. Jesus said all foods are clean. It was a change. It's, it's called the new covenant. People of Israel wonder what's called the old covenant. We're under the new agreement or the new covenant. We're not under those dietary laws. Book of Acts confirms this. God gave Peter, a leader in the church, a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven that had a bunch of unclean animals in it. And God told Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, no, God. I've never, I've never let any of those foods touch my lips. And God said, what I have declared clean is clean. And so that's how I understand what to do. Now, I think what people don't understand about the Old Testament, though, and this is something people get wrong, I believe, they think that none of the Old Testament laws apply to us, and I think that's wrong. Scholars have indicated or identified 613 Old Testament laws. 365 of them are negative commands. Don't do this, don't do that. The rest are positive commands. And the question is, which of these commands do apply and which ones don't? And some people say none of them apply. That's not true. From my perspective and that of real scholars, there are two, at least two types of commands in the Old Testament law. One are the ceremonial commands and one are the moral commands. And there's a world of difference between the two. And so the ceremonial commands are ones related to what you eat and your clothing. Like Jewish people were not allowed to wear clothing with two different materials. It couldn't be wool and cotton. It had to be one or the other. And they had to go to these festivals and feasts and they had to sacrifice animals. All of those are ceremonial laws. All of those laws were meant <clears throat> to set apart the people of Israel as a people of God. So that the whole world could look at the people of Israel and say, you dress differently, you eat differently, your festivals are different, your sacrifices are different. And they realize this is a people set apart for God, but they're ceremonial. We're not under any of those. But the moral laws are ones that I'm convinced we are still under. Ten Commandments has a number of the moral laws. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness or lie. Do any of you think those things are okay today? Just because, you know, we're not under the law anymore. Is it okay to lie now, steal, cheat? You say, well, how do I know that those still apply? Because the writers of the New Testament told us they did. Paul said this, don't stop lying, he said. Don't lie to one another. We belong to one another. And don't steal. Get a job and give. That's the better approach. Instead of stealing, why don't you be the one that gives to other people? And, and don't commit adultery. And, and one thing people do not like about this point I'm making here is that I believe that this applies to all the moral sexual laws in the Old Testament. This is where I think people struggle. But if you read the list, there are about 20 of them that were in the Old Testament law that the people of Israel were saying, don't do these things, or God said, don't do these things. You'd agree with them. I want to be discreet here this morning, but there was a law against being involved with your mom, your sister, your brother, your aunt. And the list went on and on about things that you're not, not supposed to do. And all of you would agree. Yeah, that still applies. That still applies. But how do we know? Well, Paul addressed it in the New Testament. There was a situation in the church at Corinth where some guy was involved with his mom. And the church was so happy that they were so open-handed to this individual. And Paul rebuked him. He said, get that person out until they repent. Because that still applied. The moral law still applied. I think it's important we learn how to handle the Bible correctly. But it comes down to allowing it to interpret itself. So let me summarize 
with these applications. My main point, again, is we, I think we can come to the right conclusions if we approach the Bible in the right way. What does that mean? Well, approach Scripture with a humble and teachable attitude. I would encourage you, if you're someone that reads your Bible regularly, to just pray before you start and ask God to reveal it to you. Number two, accept help from the faith community. We emphasize this a lot around here. Get involved with community. It's, it's a spiritual protection. Third, avail yourself to the good biblical resources. Fourth, admit the possibility that some things are beyond our understanding, that sometimes we just have to realize we won't know, and then finally allow the Bible to interpret itself. We're going to close with a song for you called The Same God. What I like about this song is that often in my personal prayer time, just about every day, I pray something along the lines, and I did this morning while I was in the back, I pray something along the lines of, Lord, you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're the God of Jeremiah and David. You're the God of the Apostle Paul, and you're my God. And I love that. It's a continuation. He's the same God. And some of the lines of this song go this way. I don't need another reason. I don't need more convincing. The same God who made a way is the same who's here today. Even in the darkest moment, this will be the truth I'm holding. The same God who made a way is the same who's here today. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the gift of your word. It is indeed, O oh Lord, life-giving. And we do want to receive it well. We want to recognize it as your word. And, and we do want it to impact our lives because it is the path. And Lord, I pray you give us a heart that wants to seek you to, to get to know you through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.